a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. That's it. That's the recipe. It's simple, right? Four ingredients, some variation in how you choose to deploy it, but otherwise, that's all it is. How complicated could it really get? I mean, sure, you could swap around those spirits of any kind. After all, any kind does invite some experimentation. And maybe you freeze the water so it becomes ice. It gives your drink a little more character and evolution in the glass. And sugar, well, lots of things have sugar. Molasses, honey, maple syrup, sugar cubes, powdered sugar. But the bitters, well, that's that's set in stone. I mean, most of the time you'll use Angostura, but you could use Peychaud's bitters. Or orange bitters. Or any one of the dozens of new bitters that have come out over the last 10 years. And is absinthe bitters? Is Campari bitters? Is lime juice bitters? So you start to spin these questions out, and all of a sudden that recipe from a few minutes ago starts to sound like guardrails on a 19-lane highway, but it's still a framework. It's still a box of ingredients that everyone acknowledges is absolute, even as the contents of that box grow and grow and grow over the centuries. But we all agree that we need to stick to the formula because something about those four ingredients, that prototypical recipe, tickles our brain and makes us say, wow, this cocktail thing? It's pretty good. But what does that say about those four elemental ingredients that we keep coming back to them over and over and over again? And what do those four ingredients say about us? I'm Greg Benson. And this is Back Bar. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Back Bar, the show about history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. And today, arguably, we're talking about history's number one absolute favorite drink, of all time. Because in a lot of ways, it is the drink, the proto-cocktail, the primordial ancestor from which all other cocktails evolved. The Old Fashioned, in a lot of ways, is the first cocktail because it's the most straightforward, unfooled around with version of that original recipe we quoted at the top of the show. It's spirit, sugar, water, and bitters. And while its cousins have expanded and grown and changed and evolved, looking at this drink, this long-lived example of a cocktail, can tell us a lot about cocktails at large, and frankly, the people who've been drinking them for the past 200 years. Which is all to say, yes, we are using the cocktail to examine cocktails, because it's a brand new season of Back Bar, baby, and we're getting real meta with it. So let's go back to where it all started in 1806. Regular listeners of our show, and nerds in general, will remember that that's the year the following definition appeared in the Balance and Columbian Repository, after a reader wrote in to ask about a unfamiliar word. Cocktail, then, is a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind. Sugar, water, and bitters. Doesn't get much more straightforward than that. Four things, a little room for personalization, otherwise don't mess with it. It's simple, right? Which is good, because... 
Well, I think it's important. Uh, drinks need to be reproducible and reproducible by drunks and idiots. Uh. That's David Wandrich, author of Imbibe and Punch and a bunch of articles about drinks and drinking. And honestly, if you listen to this podcast, there's a really good chance you already know exactly who he is and I don't have to tell you anything else. You know, even if people who can mix drinks at home, they got you got to make them pretty basic. You think of the dry martini. Uh, that was a three-ingredient drink that went down to two ingredients. And uh, when I was coming up, was basically one ingredient plus garnish. You know, no vermouth was used. Uh, and uh, that got around. That was easy. The more ingredients you add, the more techniques you add, the harder it gets. Fortunately, the old-fashioned is very easy. Simple, uncomplicated, tough to screw up, easy to enjoy. Even in its very early days, you can see the appeal of this drink. Mixing one is a breeze, and something about drinking it hits a very specific spot in the pleasure centers of our brain. Even in its early days, the old-fashioned was something... elemental. Or... was it? Because today, while we think of the old-fashioned, at least the default old-fashioned, as a whiskey drink, back then that wasn't always the case. As it turns out, it was far from it. In the 19th century, it was the king. The whiskey cocktail was king, you know, but the cocktail was king. And the cocktail was strong spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. And the three strong spirits at the time were gin, brandy, and whiskey. Dale DeGroff was the head bartender of the Rainbow Room in New York, wrote, The craft of the cocktail has been quoted a few times on this show, and honestly is another guest that doesn't really need much of an introduction. Brandy was king until about 1843 or so. You know, certainly in New Orleans where cognac was king. But as I said, right up until the 1840s when American whiskey started making inroads because of a lot of things, the railroads, the Erie Canal, you know, it started getting to the big metropolitan areas. They were floating stuff down the Mississippi in the early days of, of, of Tennessee whiskey and, and, and Kentucky whiskey. And so they saw rye whiskey, they saw bourbon whiskey down in New Orleans very early on, and it started to switch over. So really, Brandy took a, took a step back in, in the middle of the, of the 19th century and never recovered. Look at that 1840 definition. And this was in the New York Sunday Mercury. Brandy, sugar, absinthe, bitters, ice. That's a definition of a cocktail. So whiskey wasn't even the star ingredient until much, much later in the history of the cocktail. For about 40 years, if you were talking about a cocktail, odds were good you were discussing a drink made with sugar, water, bitters, and brandy. Whiskey wasn't even particularly fashionable, let alone old-fashioned, until much, much later in the 19th century, which is why for most of the 1800s, it was just the whiskey cocktail. That is, a cocktail, a very specific recipe in those days, mind you, made with whiskey. So here, even at the beginning, we can see the push and pull working on this drink between traditionalism and experimentation. It's funny that it's caused countless arguments and generational squabbles about the right way to make it, arguments that show absolutely no sign of slowing down anytime soon, and yet personalization is kind of built into the design from day one. Remember that line from the original definition about spirits of any kind? Any kind? You can't invite much more variety into your recipe than making the main ingredient a choose-your-own-adventure. 
In fact, cocktail as an idea and a set of flavors might have started even earlier than that quote from 1806. Odds are good it goes all the way back to London in the 1600s. There are three, three places that we've got to uh, pull up our carriage and get out and look around. And the first is uh, Southwark in London in 1690, early 1690s, uh, when a guy by the name of Richard Stoughton finishes his apprenticeship as an apothecary, basically a druggist, and uh, opens his own shop. And he has the bright idea of making a little uh, alcoholic extract that you can put in beer or wine to turn it into this drink called Pearl. Pearl, spelled P-U-R-L, was bittered beer, or bittered wine if you wanted to get fancy. But it was something you took in the morning if you wanted some spices and botanicals to settle your stomach, and you wanted to wash them down with a little hair of the dog. Stoughton realized in time that he could sell these ingredients as a concentrated tincture, and they became immensely popular. After he died and the recipe became an open secret, people on both sides of the Atlantic started referring to them as cocktail. So originally, the, the cocktail was the thing, the spice, and then it became the whole drink. Uh, in America, it became the whole drink. In England, it was still the spice. It was ginger or cayenne pepper or whatever you put in to uh, spice your drink. Over here, it was the drink itself. And now, we get to address one of my absolute favorite stories in the world of beverages, why it's called cocktail in the first place. See, these bitters, this cocktail was something you took in the morning, usually after a long night of drinking when your tail was dragging. The bitters cocked your tail up. There's a longer version of this story that involves ginger and horses and a practice known as figging that we talked about on our pilot episode, so give that a listen if you want the sort of details. Or you could Google it, but between you and me, don't do that at work. Anyway, in its early days, the cocktail was ostensibly something that you did for your health. It was called taking your bitters, which is how a lot of people played it off when they stopped in at the saloon on their way to work. I mean, people drank in the morning. There was a Brooklyn bartender interviewed in around 1850 who said he made as many cocktails at eight in the morning as he did at, at eight at night. So people lined up, you know, they stopped in on their way to work. Uh, and they had their cocktail, and they went off to work. There was a lot of winking. Uh, people uh, called it taking their morning bitters, uh, neglecting to mention that it, there was a, a good, healthy slug of Holland gin or brandy or whiskey in there. Uh, it was just the bitters that they were taking. That other stuff, that was just to make the bitters go down. <laughs> you know, no, and, and yet if you tried to take that away, uh, you would have a real fight on your hands. So they didn't really believe that drinking two to three ounces of hard liquor was good for you. It was a sly thing, a sort of secret handshake to your fellow imbibers, the other clerks and lawyers and businessmen you'd meet taking their bitters on their way to work. The people who would walk by and shake their heads, well, those poor SOBs just didn't get it. And just like that, the whiskey cocktail split the population of 19th century America into an in-crowd and an out-crowd. There are the people outside the bar, casting judgmental looks at all those drunken degenerates. And there are the people inside who were in on the joke. Over here in America, you know, we started calling uh, a glass of booze with that stuff in it a cocktail. 
the cocktail was something that cocks your tail up. So it was, uh, that's why, you know, in, in the morning when you're feeling draggy and your tail is drooping, you, you take a glass of that and it, uh, it gets you, uh, feeling sprightly and, uh, and alive again. That's the theory. I think it mostly gets you feeling drunk, but whatever. Gradually, for a number of reasons, most of them economic, but some of them nationalistic, Brandy fell out of favor as the star player in the cocktail. It was replaced by something a little closer to home, and by the latter half of the 19th century, the whiskey cocktail was on the rise. Jerry Thomas, the man who is to bartenders what Shakespeare is to English majors and Reagan is to conservatives, published the first recipe in 1862 with the build of two dashes of Boker's bitters, four dashes of gum syrup, and two ounces of whiskey, all shaken over ice and strained into a fancy red wine glass, topped with a lemon twist. By then, the split in Victorian society was ossifying, with respectable, church-going, hard-working, productive members of society on one side, and sweating, swearing, drinking, gambling folks for whom losing a fortune at cards was an average Tuesday on the other. These morning bitters-takers called themselves the sporting fraternity, and by 1859, a newspaper in Memphis included the whiskey cocktail on a list of fashionable accompaniments to their lifestyle, along with cigars, dip, and poker. But even for these old sports, the in-group, the cool kids, the good old days of getting blitzed before a hard day's work didn't last forever. Because by the end of the 1800s, new ingredients started to wash up on America's shores. Things like curacao, maraschino, absinthe, and vermouth. And a new wave of bartenders started attempting the unthinkable. They began to look at the classic, beloved, unimprovable whiskey cocktail and finding ways to improve it. And the next thing you know, we're looking at the 1860s, 1870s. People are messing with this. They're spicing it with a little bit of liqueur, or even worse, they're pouring vermouth into it. And uh, that makes a very nice drink. But for the old timers who wanted a drink that was all booze, which the original cocktail is, except for a little bit of bitters and sugar, uh, that was unacceptable, you know? What are you pouring this Italian goop into my drink for? Make mine the old-fashioned way. And there it is. There's the moment where the world of the cocktail fractures with the old-school, tried-and-true way it used to be going one way and every other conceivable combination of alcohol spinning off wildly in the other. By the 1870s and 80s, recipes for an improved whiskey cocktail began popping up in cities and recipe books and in people's glasses, sometimes without warning. What it was improved with honestly depended on where you were and who was asking, as did the notion of whether or not it was actually an improvement at all. Curacao, absinthe, pineapple, chartreuse, vermouth, even bananas all found their way into people's drinks, prompting one editor to grouse in 1886. In the regular line of drinks coming under the name cocktail, every bartender seems to have established his own private brand, so that the people who are in the habit of wetting their appetites by the friendly cocktail never know beforehand what they're going to take into their stomachs as they pass from bar to bar. It's easy to see how that could be infuriating, or at the very least, deeply confusing. Because just like today, if you walked into a bar and ordered a cocktail and didn't elaborate, there's really no telling what you're going to get. Well, the same thing was happening in the 19th century to people who still remember the good old days when the word cocktail used to mean something, damn it. 
No fruit. No weird fancy French crap. Sugar. Water. Bitters. Whiskey. That's it. See, drinks, like fashion, like art, like music, like architecture, like every other facet of human culture, are a constant series of showy overthrows of whatever came beforehand in favor of something new and modern and theoretically better. And with drinks, just like with vinyl or mom jeans, there were those rebelled against the rebellion. Both sides staked their claim on cool, with fans of the classic formula on one side and a new wave of adventurous mixologists on the other. And it's tempting, I think, to sympathize with that first group for trying to save a tried-and-true formula from the machinations of bartenders who think they're more clever than they actually are. But really, when was the last time you had an old-fashioned, a truly just straight-up old-fashioned that didn't have at least some of the bartender's personal stamp on it? No extra bitters, no blend of different whiskeys, just old-school, straight out of the 1800s. It's been a while, I bet. It has for me. Hell, I make an old-fashioned with rye, Jamaican rum, plum bitters, and house-made mulled wine syrup that sells like crazy over the holidays and would make fans of the traditional cocktail recipe recoil in horror because the improved whiskey cocktail was really just a forerunner of today's playful riff. And then, as now, your selection of experimental or traditional lets you buy into an in-group. It lets your drink say something about you. And the funny thing is, no matter which side you picked, whether it was last night or 150 years ago, that message that your drink is sending, it's the exact same one. It says, hey, those other slobs with their showy drinks, they don't know what they're talking about. But me, I get it. So suddenly there's a resistance there. And that gives us the old-fashioned cocktail. So make it the old way. Keep it on the ice. Don't strain it off the ice. Uh, you know, make it the way uh, it was made when uh, you could still get bear meat at the local hotel. Uh, you know, back in the day. Make it that way. The old fashioned started to settle in as a name and as a recipe around the end of the 19th century. While it went by a number of different spellings and punctuations, the notion of referring to a whiskey cocktail made the old-fashioned way as simply an old-fashioned probably started in Chicago with a bartender named Prue. At the famous Chapin and Gore, he became the first person to include one in a recipe book in 1888. Actually, he included two, and they both look fairly similar to what we'd consider an old-fashioned today, even though they both require a little bit of absinthe as, to quote Prue here, you would with any other cocktail. And speaking of any other cocktail, now that the old-fashioned was shouldering the burden of staying true to those four key ingredients, that word was free to go ahead and get applied to just about everything. The first interloper to really steal the spotlight was vermouth, and once the sweet red stuff from Italy started taking the place of sugar in a traditional whiskey cocktail, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a Manhattan right there. And if you're talking about a gin cocktail, and you've got some dry French vermouth instead, well, that's a martini. Want to use absinthe along with your bitters? Sazerac. Want to do a double swap with vermouth and Campari? Negroni. Want to really stretch the definition and swap lime juice in for bitters in a rum cocktail? Daiquiri. You see, 
pretty much every great cocktail of the 19th and 20th centuries dates back to that original recipe that first appeared in 1806. You just have to take some really liberal definitions with the ingredients. We drank in those days, I can assure you. We did not sip. We didn't waste any time about it either. Just stood up to the bar and drank our liquor down like men. Sometimes we downed it, and sometimes it downed us. You young fellas have changed all that, and I'll tell you frankly that I think the change is for the better. We old fellas sneer and sniff about it, maybe, but the change that has come over the drinking habits of New York has left us not so thoroughly American, perhaps, but at any rate, healthier and more respectable. That imagined exchange from 1884 and the New York Tribune between a fancified chartreuse drinker and a grizzled old man clutching a whiskey paints an almost idealistic picture of a truce between the two camps of cocktaildom. In a moment of true camaraderie, both men even end their night with an old-fashioned. But outside of this heartwarming scene, the debate raged on. Even though it had struck out on its own in search of austerity, fruit started creeping back into the old fashion, prompting an Arizona congressman who found just such a drink in front of him in D.C. to remark, I don't drink slops or eat garbage. Apparently, this was widely known enough that for decades afterwards, the fruit on the edge of a cocktail glass came to be known as the garbage and what is frankly a very funny act of late 19th century trolling. But the fact remained, even with a new name, and a new identity, the old-fashioned couldn't escape the conflict that had dogged it from the start. Was this drink meant to be sturdy, unmoving, and absolute, or a loose set of guidelines to be interpreted however one saw fit? With the 20th century just around the corner, that debate was far from over. And that's coming up after the break. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. After Prohibition, the old-fashioned, or the whiskey cocktail, or the old-fashioned whiskey cocktail came roaring back. But something was different. Not with a drink, but with the drinkers. The most popular drinks in the Times Square and Grand Central Districts, as well as in the hotels along Park Avenue, seem to be the scotch and soda and the old-fashioned cocktail. Even more disconcerting to gray-haired waiters with memories of other years was the nonchalance with which women, old and young, ordered their whiskey and sodas and gin fizzes. Prohibition achieved a lot of things that it never set out to do. But one of them, ironically enough, was democratizing bars and bringing women inside. 
Those great golden age bars of the 1800s were quite literally boys clubs. And if there's one lesson that history seems hellbent on beating into our heads over and over and over again, it's that it's really hard for things to change when things are going fine for the people in charge. But when all those grand old hotels were forced to close down in 1920, the speakeasies that replaced them couldn't afford to be nearly that snooty. If you knew the password and you had money, you could come right on in. And when bars moved back above ground in 1933, the women who developed a taste for cocktails had no interest at all in giving up their right to drink. Love of variety prompts women to sample all the new concoctions offered in the cocktail saloons, according to proprietors. But first, they must know the contents. Between sips, they analyze and question. They leave knowing the recipe. The old generation's rules for drinking were dead and buried, which led to a lot of positive changes at the bar, but also a ton of confusion. Lots of people drinking at bars in the 30s had only ever been to speakeasies before that. And with the inherited knowledge of the past hundred years wiped out, a lot of the bartenders mixing those drinks weren't far ahead of them. There just weren't a lot of people who remembered how to make an old-fashioned the old-fashioned way. So once again, every order at every bar became a game of chance, particularly when it came to fruit. Harry Craddock's Savoy cocktail book tried to put some know-how back into the hands of folks behind the stick, but his old-fashioned recipe bent to the times, calling for a lemon twist and an orange wedge. And he was one of the more conservative ones. Powdered sugar started to replace the traditional cube, a citrus cherry flag became the standard garnish, and before long, the nascent practice of muddling the orange or a cherry or even a hunk of pineapple along with the sugar and bitters began to take hold. And just like before, the folks who remembered the way things used to be were furious. Consider, for instance, the old-fashioned cocktail. Nowadays, the modern or ex-speakeasy bartender drops a spoonful of powdered sugar into the glass, adds a squirt of carbonic to aid dissolution, adds to that a dash or two of some kind of alleged bitters, and a lump of ice regardless of size. Then he proceeds to build up a fruit compote of orange, lemon, pineapple, and cherry, and himself pours in a carefully measured ounce and a half of bar whiskey, usually a blend, and gives one a glass rod to stir it with. Price, 35 to 50 cents. Profanation and extortion. It's easy to sympathize with the classicists clutching their pearls in horror at the perversions being wrought on the old-fashioned, but the truth is bartenders wouldn't be making it like that if people didn't like it. There's a theory that people got used to all that fruit in there when it was used to cover the taste of rot-gut whiskey during Prohibition, and there's probably some truth to that, but honestly, a lot of people really enjoy that fruity flavor with their old-fashions. And I'm one of them. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, I like mine with an orange wedge instead of a twist so that I can send a few cheeky squirts of orange juice to the bottom of my glass and turn the last sip into dessert when no one's looking. It's not that there aren't terrible old fashions out there made with fruit. If I get a cocktail with a bunch of cherry sundae shrapnel at the bottom of my glass, I will not be a happy camper. But there are lots of pretty decent ones out there, too. 
We'll talk more about those in a minute, but while we're on the subject of making an old-fashioned the wrong way and doing it really, really well, we need to take a quick road trip to Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a weird place. I don't think anyone's going to argue that, and certainly not the people who live there. They've given us a lot of great stuff, like Laura Ingalls Wilder and Sterling North and the Violent Femmes, and they've saddled us with a lot of real shitheads like Joseph McCarthy and Jeffrey Dahmer. They elected Joe Biden in 2020 and Donald Trump in 2016. And they gave us Brett Favre, but also Brett Favre. The point is, Wisconsin doesn't make a ton of sense. And in addition to finding a new way to make cheese even more delicious and bad for you by coating it in breadcrumbs and dunking it in oil, they also like to make their old fashions with brandy. Why? Nobody really knows. One of the more probable theories is that the Corbell brothers from California exhibited their brandy at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, and neighboring Wisconsinites took note. That theory isn't without precedent, since the fair had a pretty outsized influence on American drinkers in the 20th century and beyond. A plucky little brewer named Pabst won a blue ribbon that year, and they haven't shut up about it since. It's also probable that when a number of German and Scandinavian immigrants settled in the Midwest, they took their old country preferences for brandy with them. However it happened, the Badger State's love of brandy stuck and stuck hard. Of the 323 cases of brandy that Corbell produced in 2012, a little less than half made their way to Wisconsin. However it happened, though, it's kind of amazing that in a globalized world where trends can travel from one end of the planet to the other in the blink of an eye, one specific region of one specific country still does this one specific thing very differently. And, while the rest of the nation's serious drinkers drop their monocles into their rocks glasses at the mere thought of topping an old-fashioned with anything, Wisconsinites have a whole ritual for that, too. If you ask for sweet, you get a squirt of lemon-lime soda on top. Sour gets you something, well, more sour, and press gets you a mix of 7-Up and soda water. Apparently, there's even a preference among certain older drinkers for pickled mushrooms or onions or Brussels sprouts in old-fashioned, which I mean, objectively, ew. But hey, to each their own, right? So, even if the Wisconsin Old Fashioned isn't your cup of tea, and it isn't necessarily mine, you have to love and respect it. Not just because it's kept this cocktail alive during times when the rest of the country forgot about it, but because it's so blatantly its own thing that you have to admire it. It is a loud, proud, regional difference in a world gone flat. So to everyone who drinks them, I say, make your old fashions with brandy and Sprite and sour mix and pickled mushrooms. Although for that last one, I mean, like, seriously? Like, really? I mean, I like mushrooms and I like brandy, but, ugh, but the, but the two of them in the same glass? Yeah. Anyway, however you make your brandy old fashions, you make it the way that you want. And to all you Corbell drinkers in the entire state of Wisconsin, I say, shine on, you crazy diamond, you Florida of the North, you weird, weird, beautiful state.
Now at any given night at my bar, you can find literally a dozen people sipping on two ounces of bourbon, touched with a teaspoon of sugar, and two dashes of bitters, garnished with a simple orange twist over a couple of big ice cubes. But don't try to pull that bullshit with the good people of the great state of Wisconsin, where the brandy old-fashioned rules supreme. It's not the same drink as above, it just shares a name. And if you make it right, really right, it's a damn delicious cocktail and worthy of examination. Midwestern eccentricities aside, the 1970s were a dark time for cocktails in general, and the old-fashioned in particular. Vodka was on the rise, sending American whiskey into a tailspin it almost didn't pull out of. A once vast ecosystem of bitters shrunk to Angostura if you were lucky, and the trend towards sweet, neon-hued drinks saw a bunch of fruit-adjacent food byproducts scamming its way into many an old-fashioned glass. Properly made cocktails, if they were made at all, were done at home and were widely considered to be utterly, painfully uncool. It seemed like the great American art of the cocktail might be about to die its second death in just over half a century. But then, this happened. Fast forward to when I became a head bartender for the first time for Joe Baum, not at the Rainbow Room yet, but at a small fine dining restaurant called Aurora. That, that was my first serious move you know, in, into the into the bartending world that would become my life when he asked me to go back to the 19th century and create a 19th century cocktail program. Hello. Remember this guy, Dale DeGroff? We heard from him a little earlier on, and more importantly, his work is so central to the history of cocktails that we literally turned him into an action hero in our pilot episode. We made a lot of strong choices back then. But the thing that's about to happen to him, here in New York in the 1980s, it's going to change the world of cocktails forever. He recommended Jerry Thomas. Now, I didn't know Jerry Thomas from Hemingway. I went to Fifth Avenue and I went into the first bookstore was, I don't remember which one it was, but there were three of them on Fifth Avenue in that day. I need this drink called How to Mix Drinks by Jerry Thomas. Doesn't exist, pal. I'm sorry. I've looked everywhere. It's just not, it's not, it's not a title we carry. I said, that's impossible. Really? So I go to another bookstore. Uh, I ended up at Scribner's. Scribner's was still open, the famous old Scribner's with that beautiful glass front, you know, and Hemingway's editor used to sit right in the window up there, and I walked in. And I said, uh, I'm looking for a drink, a book called How to Mix Drinks by Jerry Thomas. I don't see it anywhere. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I love this moment here, being a fly on this wall, looking over his shoulder as he's about to rediscover drinks and techniques that almost sat around long enough to be forgotten. And when he gets to the old-fashioned, what is he going to find? A directive to follow? Or an invitation to experiment? A template? Or a mandate? What exactly is this drink? Wait a minute. And it goes and gets the old and rare catalog, right? And he brings it out. And he says, you know, this thing was published in 1862, pal. Do you know that? And I didn't know it. I didn't have a clue. Joe doesn't tell you that kind of stuff. He gives you a job to do and you do it or you don't, you know. So I ended up eventually getting a copy of this 1862. And I'm as I'm plowing through this thing, trying to figure this all out, I'm going through cobblers and I'm at the cobblers and I see whiskey cobbler. And I took a note of that old recipe because it just rocked my world. Um, where is it? Ah, here it is. 
This is what I see under Thomas's Whiskey Cobbler, 1862. Four ounces of whiskey, a tablespoon of sugar, two or three slices of orange, fill a tumbler with ice and all those ingredients and shake well. Don't strain, stick a straw in and drink it. That's Jerry Thomas's Whiskey Cobbler. And I'm like, what? This guy is shaking three slices of orange in a friggin' drink? I'm in. Now, keep in mind, that was for a whiskey cobbler, but Dale even points out that Thomas recommends topping his cocktails with, quoting here, fruit of the season. So that's exactly what Dale started doing. His drinks might have had more in common with the 20th century post-war rendition than what we tend to think of as a classic, but to hear him describe it, based on the way he learned to tend bar in California, if you make your drink with fruit, good fruit, and pay attention to what you're doing, it can actually be quite delightful. They certainly made every single old-fashioned, every single old-fashioned with a muddled cherry and a muddled orange. That's just the way they did it in the 70s and the 60s. You know, my family had it in, at, at, at Thanksgiving, and that's the way we did it. I made it, I, when I became a bartender, I would do it at Thanksgiving for my mom. She wanted a little extra cherry juice from the maraschino bottle in there. <laughs> oh, but that's the way she liked it. You know, it was a whiskey punch. And it was very, very drinkable for people that didn't want to get totally wasted. You know what I mean? No matter where you stand on this issue, it's impossible for anyone in their right mind to argue that what Dale did at Aurora and the Rainbow Room was not a success. When he launched his 19th century menu of classics in the late 80s, Dale was expecting a moderate amount of buzz from the serious drinkers and maybe some passing interest from everybody else. But, as he explained while showing me a copy of the original menu he put in front of his guests, that's not what happened. So what I was doing then was just trying to figure it all out. And, and that was a disaster. And you might be able to see it just by the density of the print on this one, as opposed to this one. The density of the print on this one, and you can't read it, but I can read it for you. This was my first menu in 1987. The Algonquin, the Americano highball, the Between the Sheets, the Bronx cocktail, the coffee cocktail, the Colony, the Flamingo, the Florador, the Jack Rose, the Manhattan, Marguerite, the Martini, Moscow Mule, Negroni, Old Fashioned, Peach Cobbler, uh, Pink Lady, uh, Planters Punch, Ramos Fish, Sazerac, Sidecar, Stork Club, Southside, 20th Century. The bartenders were ready to hang me from the tallest, you know, it, it was a disaster those first six months. I mean, we had a lot of time to practice. I thought there'd be some friends and family, you know, a quiet opening. We opened the doors and the bar was six deep from day one. We had no batches in place. We had no, we hadn't thought, I hadn't thought out the volume, that, that, that intense volume. So I went to Joe in this beautiful Milton Glazer graphic menu. I got to get it so you can see the graphics. Uh, Joe was expecting to get maybe a year out of this menu. And, I, and, and after four months, I'm in his office saying, we got to reprint. I made a terrible mistake. I got to cut 10 drinks off, the, eight drinks off this menu and make it more manageable. And then I got to figure out production, blah, blah, blah. Of course, Dale and his team did eventually figure out how to handle their menu of resurrected classics, and the program he managed for over a decade was a smash hit. And as the circle of influence grew outward from the Rainbow Room, people started looking up from their apple teenies and taking note. They started copying his methods, including using fresh juice and heretofore forgotten spirits to mix classic drinks the way they were always intended to be. Students of his, like Audrey Saunders and Sasha Petrasky, went on to open their own cutting-edge cocktail bars in New York City and beyond. And because Dale made his old fashions with fruit, 
a lot of other bartenders started doing the same. Except, and I'm sure that by this point you already know where this is going, there were some people who disagreed. Particularly in London, where the process of making an old-fashioned was a little more... laborious. When I was making old-fashions, it was only when I got to London, working for the Match Bar Group in 2002 through 2008, uh, where all the bartenders in, in the UK, no one made a muddled old-fashioned. Hmm. And by the way, the old-fashioned in the UK was the money drink. They would take muddle, bitters, a little bit of water, put in a little bit of whiskey and an ice cube and begin to stir. And they would stir. And then they would add another ice cube. And they would stir. And they would add another. And then they would stir. And they, this would go on and on. And I'm sitting at the bar going, hello. <laughs> you know, I'm a New Yorker. I order a drink. I want to get it sometime this century. And I told, I, I, when I was training the bartenders at the Mike Bar Group, I said, what's the deal with the old-fashioned? They said, you know, tips are shitty over here. That's the money drink. The old fashioned is the money train. We take our time. We make it look like this is something special, you know, <laughs> and it can't be made any other way or it won't be special. And it makes a better tip. And I said, oh, I get it. Now, you know what? From, from now on, when I come up in old fashioned, just throw the crap in there, stir it once and pass it across the bar. I'll do the rest of the stirring. <laughs> Whether it's 15 minutes of painstaking craftsmanship or an entire edible arrangement balanced on the rim of a glass, never, ever underestimate the value of some good old fashioned showmanship. But now... As we're almost up to the modern era, now that we have Dale in the picture, now that he's reading Jerry Thomas and getting his instructions right from the source, and his entire program is taking off like a horse that's just glimpsed a piece of raw ginger, maybe now we can finally get to the bottom of this question. What is the proper way, exactly, to make an old-fashioned? And he talks about the whiskey cocktail, which essentially is what this is. You know, strong spirits of any kind, whiskey, sugar, water, and bitters. Hello, you know, here we are. Started like that in 1806, but as the century moved on and the cocktail became a little more complicated, that was the first cocktail definition, but then they started putting in a little bit of curacao, one of the early ones, you know. Then, and then when absinthe came on the market, a little dashes of absinthe. And then when maraschino came on the market, so now the cocktail by mid-century, by the 1860s is, you know, not just strong spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. Now you have added to that curacao, possibly maraschino, possibly a dash of absinthe, possibly. And, and then we get into, you know, the 1880s and it gets even more complicated. Now they start with vermouth and fruit juices and, you know, which is when some of the old time drinkers said, can't you give me a, an old fashioned whiskey cocktail? Come on. It's a constant, it's a riff. It's an unstoppable force. It's an immovable object. But what Dale's legacy has proved, I think, more than anything, is that an old-fashioned, a truly correctly made old-fashioned, is, and always has been, in the glass of the beholder. The people who learn from him have gone on to inspire students of their own to take over bar programs and rewrite the rules about what a cocktail can and can't be, and they've come up with some truly inventive stuff, like Brian Miller's Conference, which splits the base of the old-fashioned into four equal parts, or Don Lee's Benton's Old Fashioned, which opened people's eyes to the wonders of fat washing. And yet, floating under all of this wild experimentation was an ethos of staying cool and cutting edge by doing everything exactly the way that they used to do it 150 years ago. Here's Dave Wandrich again. 
once we get around 2005, 2006, and this cocktail revival starts taking on a uh, distinctly hipster cast, you know, it's it's starting to get like retro and uh, beards are being grown and uh, and uh, and arm garters are coming up and things, you know, are trying to get like rough hewn and old looking. And uh, suddenly it's like, oh, the old fashioned, you know, that is perfect for this. This just this whole idea of like, there's an old world where everything is handcrafted. And there's nothing more handcrafted than an old fashioned, especially if you've got people carving ice, ice diamonds and ice balls, you know, and doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, really, really making it uh, look rough hewn and, uh, and, 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 uh, and handmade and spending a lot of time stirring it and all that kind of stuff. And it, it just became like the perfect uh, drink for that. In other words, the people who tell you not to ever mess with the perfect balance of this cocktail under any circumstances, and the ones who throw 25 different ingredients into the same glass with a hand-shaved ice beer and call it an old-fashioned, still exist. It's just nowadays, it's the same people doing both things. Because in a weird way, it doesn't matter what side of the debate you're on. Because the old-fashioned is, and always will be, all of those things. And if history is any indication, there will always be people who feel very very strongly about it. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter much what your opinion is about the old-fashioned. It's the fact that you have one that counts. So, what does that say about us? What does that reveal about our nature, that we're drawn to this drink that spawns such strong opinions and pits them against each other, even though we know that what those opinions are doesn't really matter? Do we make and debate and drink this drink because it gives us a sense of identity and scratches some deep psychological itch? Or do we just do it because we like it? What are cocktails for? That's this season on Backbar. This episode of Back Bar was written, researched, and directed by me, Greg Benson, with engineering support from Matt Patterson and Brandon Fudernick, and research assistance from Zoe Denkla. Our artwork is by Alicia Chan, and our music is by Ryan Laney. A special thanks, as always, to our fantastic guests on this show, Dale DeGroff and David Wandridge, as well as our always stellar cast, this time headlined by Chris Stinson and Mary Myers. Thank you so much for listening to HRN, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place, and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top of our homepage. Tune in next time when we talk about brandy, cider, and some of the more inspiring people the cocktail world has forgotten. 
That's when we return for more of history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. <laughs>